Yep. <laughs> She's still talking about the priesthood. Oh my gosh. Well, you know, uh, it's important that we know the scriptures. It's important we know God's word. And I hope that this study in Hebrews is, is much of a blessing and source of strength to you in your life as it has been to me. We are indeed going to continue to talk about the priesthood this morning. We're going to complete chapter 7, um, a rather substantial section of Scripture, verses 11 through 28. The people Friday night were betting I wouldn't get through it. I barely did, but we'll manage our way. This particular passage really uh, speaks to us about how Jesus does, in fact, fulfill the priesthood of Melchizedek. And uh, remember the background to this whole letter is, is written to Hebrews who have professed faith in Jesus but through varieties of circumstances and choices they've made, they're falling away from the faith. And the whole point of the letter is to urge them on to continue to trust in Jesus no matter what. For he is indeed not only their Messiah, he is their high priest, he is the great sacrifice, he is the way and the truth and the life. So they're being urged on. And, and we also are urged on. Typically, human beings, we are, because we're sinful, because we are sinners, because we are weak, because we are not perfect, we have a tendency to try to, I mean, we recognize this, what I call the performance gap. We know where we ought to be, we know where we are, and we somehow try to bridge that gap ourselves. And either we justify our behavior or we, uh, we enter into a, uh, what we call the covenant of works. We, we try to be good enough to somehow bridge that gap to be worthy so that we can approach God. Uh, we trust in religion. We trust in works. We trust in self-righteousness. All these things, they're very much the same that the ancient Hebrews had come to rely on and to depend on. A covenant of works, the old covenant, the religious system of sacrifices and rituals, uh, the priesthood, the temple, all that was very familiar to them, uh, works and religion in essence. We have the same issues facing our life. Even, even those who, of us who are born again, we know the truth, there, there is sometimes a difficulty in maintaining a walk in grace, and we we fall short, and we resort back to our having to having to read the Bible. I have to read my Bible. That says a lot, doesn't it? I have to read my Bible, rather than oh, I can hardly wait to read the Bible. Those are two different mindsets. I have to read my Bible. says what? It says that, well, I, I have to do this. This is a religious thing. And somehow God will smile on me. And back in the back of the resources of our mind, we think that, well, if I do something bad, I won't suffer because I read my Bible today. Or I have to pray. 
No, I want to pray. I want to spend time with the one who loves me more than anybody. Or I have to go to church. Oh, it's Sunday morning, I want to sleep in, I have to get up. No, I, I can hardly wait to get with the body. I can hardly wait to, to be in the midst of the congregation and praise my God. You see, it's, it's a whole different life. But so many of the times, it's, it's not I get to, it's I have to. It's not I want to, it's I have to. And all that says to us is that we can slip back into legalism and legalistic thinking. Rather than pressing on into a richer, deeper relationship with God passionately, confidently trusting in Him. And that's the point of what we want to address this morning. Is that we have, because of Jesus, we have access to God. We draw near to Him. We can draw near to Him. And that's what we're talking about. I want you to read with me verses 11 through 28, and then we're going to go back and, and look at uh, some of these verses and, and, and what they mean to us. Verse 11 of chapter 7. He says, If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the law was given to the people, in other words, on the basis of perfection, the law was given. Why was there still need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron? For when there is a change of the priesthood, there must also be a change of the law. He of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah. And in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears. One who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless. For the law made nothing perfect. And a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath. But he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, again he quotes Psalm 110, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Now there were many of those priests, meaning the Levites, since death prevented them from continuing in office. But, just, but, but because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. Because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. 
Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak. But the oath which came after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. Now, let's go look at that passage. Let's begin to examine it. And it is rich with understanding about Jesus. Now remember, he's already told us, if you remember from the first half of chapter 7, the author has, has given us Melchizedek as a model of a high priest. And as, as highly esteemed as Abraham was in the mind of the Israelites, as highly esteemed as the Levitical priesthood was in the mind of the Israelites, Melchizedek is greater. Melchizedek was greater than Abraham, esteemed more highly in terms of God's economy of things. And Melchizedek is greater than the Levitical priesthood. Now, once we understand who Melchizedek is, once we understand the greatness of Melchizedek, the stage is set for us to now understand how Jesus is greater than everything that the, that the Jews knew and understood from their economy and how Jesus fulfills this, this priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. And uh, again, this is uh, absolutely rich. Now, in, in verse 19 is found, I think, the key phrase of this whole passage. This is the, the whole key thought that we want to hold on to. And that key phrase is, we draw near to God. It's only through Christ that we can draw near to God. You can't draw near to God any other way. No other philosophy, no other religion, not even Judaism allows a person to draw near to God. Many of us have been fond in various points of our life. Uh, before we became believers, I remember I would do this. I would go down to the beach. I'd sit on the beach. I'd watch the sun go down. And I'd think, I'm communing with God. And I'd have all these warm fuzzies. <laughs> I was only self-deceived. I didn't realize that I wasn't communing with God. I thought I was. I was ignorant. I needed somebody to enable me so that I could come to God. I needed, in short, a priest. I needed a mediator. Someone who could bridge the gap between me and God and God and me. There is a great gulf between us. And if I, in, in my own foolishness, try to diminish that gulf and think that based on my own cuteness, my own efforts my own abilities that I can bridge that gulf, I am tragically, sadly mistaken. We need a priest. This is the whole point of, of understanding the Levitical priesthood, and it's the whole point of understanding Melchizedek and Jesus. You can only draw near to him through Jesus, and we'll see this in this passage. So the key phrase is found in verse 19, we draw near to God. Now, I suggested to you last week that God's ultimate desire for us is that we draw near to him, is that we come into his presence, is that we fellowship with him. That's his ultimate desire for us. The goal of all that God has done for us is to that very end. 
that we might be able to actually come into his presence and enjoy fellowship with him. That's the point of everything that he's done, is to draw us to him, is that we might draw near. I also want to suggest that, that there's two kinds of, from this point of view, from this perspective, there's two kinds of Christians. The first kind of Christian will look at Jesus Christ only as a means of salvation and personal happiness. Now by that I mean if the person, if this Christian believes he or she is saved and that they are fairly happy with their circumstances. I mean, circumstances aren't perfect, but they're fairly happy with their circumstances. Things aren't too out of order. Everything's kind of smooth. So they're looking at Jesus. I'm saved. Uh, my circumstances are okay. Then they consider their lives fulfilled. This is all I need. This, I'm, I'm happy. I'm fulfilled. The second kind of Christian, however, goes beyond that. The second kind of Christian views their life as a continuing, growing, deepening, maturing relationship with God by the Holy Spirit, through God's word, prayer, fellowship, etc., etc., etc. In other words, every resource that God makes available to us this second kind of Christian makes full use of because this Christian knows he or she needs all these resources in order to experience a greater, greater, richer, deeper relationship with God. This is the whole point of their life. They are passionate for God. They're not self-satisfied. They're not content. In fact, their lives are governed by a holy discontent. I want more of him. I want to know him more. I want my life to be more full of him. Rather than, uh, I'm content. The circumstances of my life are pretty good. I'm happy, I'm saved, I'm in. That's all I need. Do you see what I'm saying? What's God's desire? God's desire is that we long for him, that we be passionate for him. Who's ever been in a love relationship? Oh gosh, not everybody. I'm, what a tragedy. You ought to try it. It's wonderful. I mean, to be in love and to be unbashedly in love and, and to be passionate for somebody and to have them be passionate for you. How many know what I'm talking about? Ah, a few more hands going up, right. Ask Dan and Rose Center. Ask him about a lifelong passionate marriage, right, Rose? Isn't it great when Dan's passionate with you? Oh, I love it. <laughs> yeah, he'll give testimony pretty soon. So this, this, is what, this is what God longs for us. And how, how, how much we miss, even in, in our own temporal relationships, when we, when we don't more fully seek that relationship. God's given us everything we need, hasn't he? He's given us the body. He's given us the word. He's given us prayer. He's given all the resources that we need that we might press on in, that we might enjoy him as we engage all of these resources. Be passionate for him. The fullest expression of our faith is to enjoy him, is to fellowship with him. If you can just picture yourself entering into the heavenly holy of holies, into his very presence, 
That's the fullest expression of our faith. That was something that Judaism could never enable men to do. That's something that no philosophy, no religious sect, no worldview apart from Jesus Christ can enable men to do is to enjoy and to have fellowship unhindered with the living God who is our Heavenly Father. Now, it's only by the blood of Jesus Christ, we're told, and these are the recurring themes throughout the book of Hebrews. It's only by the blood of Jesus Christ, that perfect sacrifice on Calvary, it's only by his high priesthood can we have access to God. And again, as I said, these are the recurring themes throughout the book of Hebrews. The old Levitical priesthood was imperfect. It was inadequate. It could not remove the barrier of sin that separates man and God. It could not remove that barrier. It was weak and inadequate. It could not provide unhindered access to God. The key is unhindered access to God. The old system, therefore, had to be superseded. And in fact, in Psalm 110, we see in verse 4 that God predicts another priesthood. Another priesthood would come and would supersede all that the Israelites knew in terms of the Levitical priesthood and the old rituals and sacrifices. Look at verse 11 again, one more time. You see the word perfection there? If perfection could have been... The idea of perfection, we think most typically about being made perfect, right? We are being made perfect. We are being perfected. I want to add a little bit of different spin to that word. I want you to think of perfection in this context as access to God. If access to God could have been attained through that old priesthood. Do you see the point we're driving at? The old priesthood could not grant access to God. Could not do it. In fact, Jesus, Jesus in John 14, 6, who knows what that verse says? John chapter 14, verse 6. That's right. I am the way and the truth and the life. No man can come to the Father but through me. Now who, when Jesus utters those words, who's he talking to? Who's his audience there? Jews living under the old covenant. What's he saying to them? He's saying that all that you've known in your past now is ineffective. He says if you're going to come to the Father, if you're going to come and, and, and have fellowship with him, you've got to come through me. He's testifying to them. If the Levitical system could have brought this perfection, if it could have brought this access to God, this is what he's saying in verse 11, um, why would God then have to provide another priesthood? Obviously the first couldn't do it. The second was required. It must supersede the first. Now look at verse 12. With a new priesthood now, with a change in the priesthood, comes also a change in what? The law. Now, what does this mean, a change in the law? What, how's God changing the law? Does that mean that we don't, we don't obey God anymore? Does that mean he throws the law away or this, somehow the law is imperfect? What does he mean? What's going to be changed about the law, do you think? Does he mean he's doing away with the moral law? 
Just back up for a second. If you look at the law under the, under the um, um, agency of Israel, the Mosaic law, the Mosaic law was basically broken into three sections. There's the moral law. We know the moral law is the Ten Commandments, right? Then there's a civil law, and that governed the civil life of the nation. In other words, it not only gave them identity, but it gave them structure and order in the context of their civilization there. And then there was the, the uh, uh, ceremonial law. This is the part that he's talking about. With a change in the priesthood now comes a change in the law. In other words, all the rituals and the ceremonies are going to be abolished. They're done away with. He's not talking about the moral law. We still obey God. God's moral law still holds for Israel and for you and I. But he's saying, in effect, you don't have to run to the temple anymore. You don't have to observe all the rituals anymore, all the washings, all the sacrifices. Uh, that's all done with. It's over. It's finished. It's been replaced permanently. This is very key for these people to grasp. You're not going to be able to embrace Jesus unless you put off all the old stuff that you've been leaning on that you think gives you access to God. Did Christianity have its roots in Judaism? Yes, it did. Therefore, if it had its roots in Judaism, is it logical then to think that Christianity is an enhanced form of Judaism? Mm -hmm. Careful, it's a trick question, Miriam. Is Christianity an enhanced form of Judaism? No, it's not, that's right. Christianity replaces Judaism. It replaces Judaism. Because Christ is the fulfillment of everything that the Old Covenant spoke about. The law, the prophets, the sacrifices, the priesthood, everything was like one big huge index finger pointing to Jesus. And Jesus fulfills it all, hence Christianity replaces Judaism. This is the point that these people have to grasp. Don't run back to Judaism because you're nervous, you're unsure. Press on in to this relationship with Jesus Christ. Because all that's passed away. It's useless. It's not going to do you any good. Listen to God's testimony about this. Mark chapter 9. Mark records the transfiguration. This is when Jesus takes Peter and James and John up on this mount called the Mount of Transfiguration. And then uh, as, they're, as they're all, the three of them are gathered around, Jesus is standing up, and all of a sudden, man, he just lights up. He just begins to glow in the dark. And then before they know it, on either side of him are two other persons, and they're also glowing in the dark. Who are they? <laughs> Moses and Elijah. Now, what do Moses and Elijah represent? The law and the prophets, the old covenant. Now, I want you to notice what happens. This is very significant. This is God's testimony that the old has passed away. So all three of them are up there and there's, they're talking. And then Peter pipes up and he says, oh, man, we better make this a holy place. Let's build three shelters, one for, one for Moses, one for you, Jesus, and one for Elijah. But then 
Moses and Elijah disappear. And the only one left is Jesus. They disappear. And then a voice comes down out of the cloud and it says, this is my son in whom I love. Listen to him. That's the key word. Listen to him. What happened to Moses and Elijah? They disappeared. What's that a picture of to these three disciples? The old has passed away. What's left? Jesus. Jesus is, is the word of God incarnate. Listen to him. Listen to him. Does that mean we don't read the Old Testament? No, we read the Old Testament because it's so full of beautiful pictures and the whole account of God's working in the history of mankind culminating in Jesus Christ. The Old Testament is rich and we read it, yes. But this is God's testimony. Think about this. Even before the new covenant is finalized by Jesus' death and resurrection, God himself on that Mount of Transfiguration illustrates how the old has passed away. Even before Jesus dies and is raised from the dead. Isn't that phenomenal? At Mount Sinai, you remember when Israel was led out of Egypt, out of bondage and captivity, and they're out in the wilderness now, and God leads them around to Mount Sinai. Exodus chapter 19. At Mount Sinai... The Israelites were invited by God to approach him to come up on the mountain. Remember, the mountain is smoking and there's fire and thunder and all sorts of things. And God says to Moses, invite the people to come up on the mountain and approach me. No? What happened there? How, am I, how was my account wrong? They were prohibited from coming up on the mountain. In fact, God told them, go through three days of purification, all the people, and then put a fence at the base of the mountain, and so the people can't come up on the mountain, lest I strike them dead. They were prohibited from approaching God. Now keep that thought in mind. God gave Moses the law. In the law, he gave him also the design for the tabernacle. Remember? The tabernacle was the tent affair that they would set up in the wilderness in anticipation of the temple in Jerusalem. In the tabernacle was a little tiny tented off place called the Holy of Holies where the presence of God dwelt on the top of the, uh, of the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant. And that's where God would meet with Moses and eventually with Aaron and so forth. Okay, Now, did the people have access to the Holy of Holies? No. They were prohibited from entering in the Holy of Holies. How about later on in the, in the temple, when the temple was built in Jerusalem? There was the same Holy of Holies, right? Could the people enter in and just come freely to God? No. Now think about this for a minute. Right from the get-go, way back at Sinai, all the way through their history... The testimony is the Old Covenant could not bring them to God. In fact, it prohibited them from coming to Him. Think about that. But Jesus, Jesus removed this barrier. Where do we know? How do we know that Jesus removed the barrier? What testimony is there in the gospel accounts? 
the veil in the tent. Remember, remember the, this veil. It was a thick, thick thing. Uh, some scholars think it was as thick as a phone book. It was a woven veil, a woven curtain that, that protected the entrance to the Holy of Holies. You could not get through it. It was so thick and so heavy. It, it represented the barrier of sin and the, the distance between God and man. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record at the moment of Jesus' death, when he gives up his spirit, that the veil is rent, it's torn from top to bottom. You almost get this picture of God's hands reaching down and going, rip! <laughs> and opening the way! There's been a barrier up until this time, and now the way is open, and no longer... Are people prohibited from coming directly to God because now there is a new high priest and a final sacrifice has been offered in the person of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So the whole Judaic system was changed. No, not just changed. It was exchanged. It was exchanged for a whole new order, a whole new sacrifice, a whole new priest and a whole new covenant. This is what we have now. That which the Judaic system could not provide, Jesus has provided. Now verses 13 through 17 talk about his heritage. We know that Jesus was of the tribe of Judah, not the priestly tribe, which was the tribe of Levi. Right? So Moses, he says, Moses never said anything about any of the people from Judah being uh, priests and so forth. And, uh, but he says that this, verse 15, what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears. I want to point out something too that was really significant to me. Hopefully you'll, you'll grasp something of, the, of the, uh, uh, the wonder of this. Now I'm reading from the New International Version. Most of the time as I study, I'll, I'll have a Greek New Testament open alongside and I'll read through the Greek and I'll look at the words that the author uses and, and uh, sometimes you can get some very interesting little tidbits if you, if you know Greek and you can read and study Greek. Something I discovered was very fascinating. It's kind of a coincidence that I discovered this. The same word is used three times, different forms of the word, but it's used three times. It's translated each time differently in the English. Let me point out to you. The first place it's used is in verse 11. About halfway down through the verse, it says, For another priest to come. Do you see that? Now that word, that, that little phrase, to come, in the Greek, it, it, let me read it this way. It says, why was there still need for another priest to arise? That's the literal translation, to arise. Now jump up with me to verse 14. The same word is used in the Greek. Verse 14, for it is clear that our Lord, now in the English here it says, descended from Judah. Do you see that? But in the Greek is, has arisen from Judah. Are you catching? There's a little play on the words here. Twice we have this word arise. Now he has arisen from Judah. Now here's the third word. And the, the, the first two uses, I think, point to the third use. And you'll see it even more clearly. In verse 15. 
And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek, now in my translation it says appears, but literally in the Greek, the word is arises by himself. It's a unique construction. It's what's known as the middle voice, which is reflexive. He's, a, he's arising by himself. Did Jesus arise by himself? Yes. Isn't he God? Didn't he give birth to himself in a sense? Didn't he arise out of Judah by himself? Didn't he rise from the dead by his own power? Woo! Now, I don't know about you, but when I discovered that, that just tickled me. I thought, that is fascinating. And unfortunately, we lose that in the, in the English translation, the, the wonder and the mystery of Jesus arising by himself. Now, how did the other priests come to office? They had to be appointed. Right? And they had to, it had to be by their family and by, by ceremony. But Jesus arises by himself. And he would arise from the dead by his own power. And we even have an allusion to that here in just a second. Look at verse 16. Verse 16 says, One who has become a priest, not on the basis of regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. How did he become a priest? How did he become a priest? On the basis of what? The power of an indestructible life. By virtue of who he is and the power that's inherent in him as God. The power of an indestructible, not even death can destroy him. Not even death can dissolve his life. He's become priest on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. And beloved, it is by that very same power that you and I now have access to God. The other priests didn't have that power. They couldn't provide access to God. Only one who has the power of an indestructible life, who can punch through death, who can destroy the last enemy death, and can open up the way to God. Only Jesus can do that. Nobody else can do that. And Paul speaks of that, the power of God in our own lives. He talks about that in Ephesians and Corinthians um, and Philippians. And I encourage you to read those passages. In verses 18 and 19 of our passage, we see uh, the statement that the rituals were abolished. They were replaced by a better hope by which we draw near to God. And then in verses 20 and 22, we see that God has sworn an oath to the permanence of Jesus' priesthood. God has sworn an oath to the permanence of Jesus' priesthood. Where else, did God swear an oath anyplace else that we know of? Where else did he swear an oath? To Abraham, that's right. He promised to Abraham, he'd give him a heritage, and in fact, he backed up the promise with an oath. In chapter 6 of Hebrews, remember, uh, the writer says it's by two things for God to lie. And it's in reference to the promise to Abraham that he would have a spiritual heritage. He would have a family. And uh, there's a guarantee there. And in the very sense, same sense, God swears an oath. He guarantees us 
that Jesus will have a permanent priesthood. And in fact, the writer says that Jesus now is the guarantee. Someone says, I want a guarantee. How can you guarantee me this is true? Jesus is the guarantee. Well, how can I know that it's sure? God has sworn it is sure. And on top of that, we have the power of an indestructible life backing it all up. So we have those two great testimonies. Jesus, who is indestructible, having an eternal priesthood, is our guarantee. He is a permanent bridge builder between man and God. You cannot blow that bridge down. You cannot blow that bridge away. That bridge, Jesus Christ, is there. He is there. He is there. He is solid. He is our guarantee. There's a beautiful picture of this idea of guaranteeing back in the Old Testament. The book of Genesis points right to Jesus. I hope you appreciate this. The book of Genesis, chapter 43 and 44, you have the account. Remember Joseph? Joseph, a young man, one of Jacob's sons, uh, has a dream. And in his dream, he sees... He sees these sheaves of wheat bowing down to him and so forth. And he goes and tells his brothers, guess what? You're going to bow down to me. Well, of course, that wasn't exactly uh, that which won uh, his brother's favor. They weren't, oh, great, that's good. I'm glad you told us about that. So they're not real pleased and happy. So they sell him off into slavery. And you follow Joseph's life in his career. And then for the next, we don't know how many years for sure, but you find him in prison, we find him rejected, we find him forgotten, we find him uh, unjustly accused. I mean, he's trying to do what's right, but every time he turns around, he gets smacked, he gets beaten down, until ultimately we find him now raised up, exalted. This recalls what Peter says, you know, after you've suffered for a little, the God of, call, God of all grace has called you to his peace, in fact, will, uh, will establish, strengthen, and confirm you. In his time. So we see now Joseph raised up. He is second to Pharaoh in Egypt. Now the stage is set. There's famine going on in Palestine. Jacob, his father, and the remaining brothers need food. So Jacob tells his sons, go down to Egypt where there's lots of food, buy grain, and come back so that we might have food. So they all go down except one brother. Who's the one brother that doesn't leave home? Benjamin, because Jacob absolutely dotes on Benjamin. He is the youngest brother, and, and Jacob is not about to let Benjamin go out of his sight because he's already lost one son, Joseph. So the other brothers, the other ten, come down to Egypt. They buy grain. They don't know who Joseph is, their brother, but he interviews them. He realizes that they're his brothers. So he asks about the whole family, about their father and everything. And he says, is there anybody else left at home? They say, oh, yes, we have one more brother, Benjamin. Oh, and Joseph's heart just leaps. So he gives them all their grain. They go back. But they need grain again. He says to them before they go back, he says, if you ever come back, bring Benjamin. So they get back, and now they need more grain. So they're going to come back and get more grain. Jacob says, go down and get Egypt and get some more grain. So they're going to come back. And, uh, but the brothers tell, tell Jacob, well, we can't go. We can't get more grain because the man in charge says we've got to bring Benjamin. He wants to meet Benjamin. 
Jacob says, and ain't no way. You ain't taking my Benjamin. Says, but we got him. If we don't take Benjamin, there ain't no grain. We ain't going. You got to let him go. Nope. 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 I've already lost one. And if I lose Benjamin, I'll be so stricken with grief, I'll die. I won't be able to handle it. Judah. Where, which tribe did Jesus come from? Judah steps forward. I, I want you to see the picture. It's beautiful. Judah says to his father, get the imagery? He says to his father, Jacob, if you'll entrust Benjamin to my care, I guarantee his return. I guarantee if anything ever happens to Benjamin, I myself personally take responsibility. You can hold me accountable for the rest of my life. I guarantee Benjamin's safety. Jacob says, okay. He entrusts Benjamin into Judah's care. They go down to Egypt. Joseph meets him, sees his baby brother. Oh, they still don't know who he is. And they get the grain, and they're leaving back for Palestine. But Joseph has his special silver goblet hidden in Benjamin's sack as if Benjamin stole it. A ruse to get him back. So there you leave. The brothers leave. They're heading back. Joseph sends the captain of the guard. He goes, tracks them down. He says, my master's cup is missing. Someone stole it. We think you guys did it. And they go, no, no, not us. You can search all of our bags, all of our belongings. It's not here. In fact, if you find it among us, let whoever's got it be killed. They search through all the bags, starting from the oldest down to the youngest. They finally get to Benjamin's sack. They open Benjamin's sack. They search through it. Guess what they find in Benjamin's sack? The silver goblet. Judah goes... (laughs) He has promised to guarantee Benjamin's safety. What's he going to do? They all have to go back to Egypt now. Judah appeals to Joseph, still not knowing who he is. He appeals to him and he says, Please let me stay and be a slave for for the rest of my life to you in place of my brother Benjamin. Take me instead. I'll pay for it with my life. Let him go free. My father could not bear losing him. Is that not a beautiful picture of Jesus saying, being the guarantee for us with our Father? Beautiful, isn't it? There's another example in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul, writing to Philemon, the little tiny little one-chapter book right before Hebrews, writing to Philemon. Philemon was a slave owner who become a Christian. He had a slave named Onesimus who had escaped run away. And Paul had met him, and, and Paul was trying to bring reconciliation between Philemon and Onesimus. And so he writes to Philemon, and he says this of Onesimus, If he had done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I will pay it back. I will pay it back. What's Paul saying? Paul's willing to be the guarantee 
for this runaway slave. Again, another symbol, another uh, picture of Jesus as our guarantee. Jesus is not only the mediator of this new covenant, but he is also the guarantee of it. He guarantees it. Every promise in the new covenant, every promise in the new covenant is guaranteed to us by Jesus himself. He guarantees to pay all the debts that our sins have incurred in the past and in the future that they have incurred against us. He pays all the debts. Picture this in your mind, if you will. You're horribly in debt. Your business is folded. Bills keep mounting up. You borrowed money from your family, your neighbors. Your charge cards are all maxed out. Interest is killing you. The IRS is after you. You owe them thousands and thousands of dollars. You're hopelessly in debt. And then somebody comes along and says, I'm going I'm to wipe out all that debt. I'm going to pay all your debts. And you go, oh, thank you. Thank you. And then they say, not only that, I'm going to pay for all the debts that you're going to incur for the rest of your life. Is that cool? See, that's Jesus. That's Jesus. He says, I'm, I'm going to pay, pay the entire debt of all that your sin has incurred against you, not only in the past, but also for the future sin. It's paid for. That's what he says when he says, it is finished. It's paid for. He was already punished for everything you and I have done or ever will do. It's a done deal. He's the guarantee of a new and a better covenant. It's called the covenant of grace. Verse 23, we're told that the Levitical priests had what might be called the ultimate disqualification from permanent ministry. What do you think is the ultimate disqualification from permanent ministry? Death. That does it. You die, you're disqualified. Oh, my. You see, none of them could serve indefinitely. If you look in Numbers chapter 8, we see the, we see the ages 20 to 25 to 50 listed there. But whether it was age or, or certainly death, none of them had a perpetual ministry. Um, and it's interesting to picture this for Israel at the very beginning of the priesthood way back in the wilderness. You see God painting an object lesson for the Israelites that they might know and understand that this priesthood is going to pass off the scene. It happens in the person of Aaron. Aaron is the progenitor. He is the beginning priest. He's, the, he's brother, Moses' brother, and he's the one who's going to start the priesthood off. So he's anointed high priest. Now it's time for him to die. He's getting ready to die. So God tells Moses, he says, now bring bring Aaron and his son, Eliezer, in front of the congregation, and we're going to anoint Eliezer as the priest, and we're going to pass on the garments and the high priesthood to his son. So they do that. Shortly thereafter, Aaron dies. Now, what's really curious is this. After Aaron's death, God has the people mourn for Aaron for 30 days. 
Now, in and of itself, it doesn't seem, well, okay, we're going to mourn for 30 days. But what do you think might be the significance, in the light of what we're talking about, what might you think be the significance of mourning for 30 days for Aaron? If not, God is causing him to focus on Aaron and his death, indicating that the priesthood is a dying priesthood. You see that? It's a significant insight. They were to know, the people were to know right from the get-go that this priesthood was passing away. Because here's the very first high priest who dies. And they're to focus on his death. As an illustration of the dying of the priesthood. What a, what a dynamic, what a dramatic illustration, wouldn't you think? Aaron must die. Moses will die shortly thereafter, won't he? Neither one of them enter the promised land. Is there significance in that? Absolutely. Aaron's death, followed by Moses' death, teach us two things about the Old Covenant. They symbolize two things about the Old Covenant. The first is this, that the Old Covenant was not permanent. And second, it could not bring the people into the promised land. The Old Covenant was weak. It could not do it. It was inadequate, as symbolized by the death of Moses and Aaron. In other words, the Old Covenant was temporary. The Old Covenant could not save. It could not save. Neither the law represented by Moses nor the sacrifices represented by Aaron could deliver the people from the wilderness of sin and bring them into the land of salvation. But because Jesus lives, verses 24 and 25, again, this comparison says, but because Jesus lives forever, he has a, what kind of priesthood? Permanent. Permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save partially. That's right, completely. He's able to save completely those who what? Come to God through him. Again, echoing his own words. I'm the way, the truth, and life. No man can come to the Father but through me. And so again, we see the writer to the Hebrews reinforcing this. It says, because he always lives to intercede for them. That is a marvelous thought. He always lives to intercede for them. On earth, when Jesus was here the first time, did he come to serve or to be served? He came to serve and he came to give his life a ransom for many. Remember? Right? All right. Now he's in heaven. What does he exist in heaven to do? If he served here on earth, what does he exist in heaven to do? He's still serving, isn't he? How is he serving? He's making intercession. He is interceding. He is a priest forever. He is the high priest forever. The one who is forever opening the door of friendship to God and who's forever the great servant of mankind. Think about this for a moment. He's interceding. He's interceding. Miriam, 
What could Jesus possibly be telling you about his father and your father right now? What's he interceding for you for? <laughs> Would you like to tell the rest of us? <laughs> I don't think so. I mean, think about your deepest, darkest secret. Think about the thing that you're most ashamed of. Think about the thing that plagues you. Think about the stuff in your life that you just, oh, yuck, is not there. You wish wasn't there. See, there's one who's saying, Father, chalk that up to my account. Charge that to me. I'll pay for it. I'll pay for it. I'll pay for it. I'll pay for it. Stuff that we, stuff that we, we don't even really understand. The what's and the why's that we do and what we do and why we do it. Father, charge it to my account. I'll pay for it. I'll pay for it. Constantly serving us. Constantly meeting our need. And that's exactly what he says in the next passage. He is the high priest we need. Nobody else can do for us like Jesus can do. And what qualifies him to be that great high priest? Well, we're told. First, he is holy. He is holy. There's two Greek words for holy. One means set apart. This is a different word that's used in this passage. It means without sin. He is sinless. There's no sin in him. He is holy in that sense. All the Levitical priests were sinful as evidenced by the fact that they had to offer sacrifices for themselves before they could offer sacrifices for the people. Not so Jesus. Jesus never had to offer sacrifice for himself. In fact, Jesus says of himself in John's Gospel, chapter 14, verse 30, he said, the prince of the world is coming. Do you remember that? The prince of the world is coming. In other words, Satan is coming. He's coming to attack, but he has nothing on me. In other words, there's no, nothing in my life that he can call to account. There's nothing, no place in my life where he can gain a foothold. Nothing. He's coming, but there's nothing in me that he can claim. He is holy. No sin in him. Secondly, he is blameless. Blameless. This idea of being blameless describes a man in his effect upon his fellow men. The idea of causing no harm, not letting people down. The old priests, because they were imperfect, because they were weak men, would in fact let people down. And in some cases were very corrupt and would do harm to their fellow Israelites. Not so Jesus. He was blameless. He never, ever hurt anybody, and he never, ever let anybody down. Blameless. Unlike many of us, we fall short. We are not blameless. Thirdly, he's pure. Literally, that means he's stainless. There's no, no stain whatsoever. Remember the, the sacrificial lamb had to be what? Without blemish? And the priest had to be stainless. The sacrifice had to be offered for himself before he could go approach God. Well, Jesus is pure, both as the sacrifice and as the priest. No blemishes. A lot of Levitical priests were disqualified 
from priestly ministry because they had physical limitations and blemishes. You read about it in the book of Leviticus. Certain priests couldn't minister, even though you're of that priestly line. But not so Jesus. Fourthly, he was different from sinners. Different from sinners in the sense that he was mankind at its highest and its best. The perfect man. And in fact, we are being transformed into the likeness of Christ, that perfect man. Do you remember way back in the book of Genesis when man was created in God's image? Sin deformed the image. And now through Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are being transformed back. The image that was originally in man is being reshaped and is being put back together. This is what it's all about. And lastly, he is exalted higher than any created thing. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And the last thing we want to look at this morning with respect to Jesus in in contrasting to the priests in this priesthood, we're told in verse 28 that all the priests of the Old Covenant, even the most dedicated of them, was weak. They were weak. Now let me me contextualize this for you. This This is fascinating. Whenever the high priest would go in to the presence of God, he would wear certain garments. One of the garments was called an ephod. Ephod was, it was, a, it was a garment that, they, that the priest would wear on his shoulders. And on either shoulder, in, in, woven into the ephod, was an onyx stone. So there were two onyx stones. On each onyx stone were engraved six names of the twelve tribes of Israel. So on one shoulder he had six tribes, on the other tro- shoulder he had six tribes. Attached to the ephod by golden chains was a breastplate. On the breastplate were, were 12 precious stones, each stone representing one of the 12 tribes of Israel. So now here's the priest. Whenever he would go into the temple, or whenever he would go into the presence of God, he would wear the ephod, he'd wear the breastplate, he would go into the presence of God. The picture is that he is carrying now the people of Israel. He's carrying the Israelites into the presence of God on his heart. The breastplate was symbolic of his affection for the people. And on his shoulders, like the good shepherd, who would be carrying the people into the presence of God by his own strength. You get the picture of that? Now, this represented, again, affection for the people, that the people were on his heart, and it represented the strength to bring them to God. Now, undoubtedly, many of the priests had an affection for the people. But they did not have the strength to bring them to God. They were weak. Now, if you had that picture in mind, now contrast that with Jesus. How does Jesus fulfill that picture? We have a high priest who has no such weakness. We have a high priest who carries our names on his heart. We have a high priest who carries us on his shoulders as the good shepherd into the very presence of the Father. We have a high priest who loves us perfectly. We have a high priest who can save us perfectly. We have a high priest who is able. 
He is not weak. And he is Jesus, the Son of God, and God the Son. And it's by Christ that you and I can, with confidence, approach the throne of grace. And we can obtain mercy and grace in our time of need. God is for us, beloved. He is for us. He is not against us. And in a moment of need, you can go to him with confidence because you have a great high priest who has opened the way and that door is open permanently. The curtain has been torn. The old has passed away. The new has come. And God says, oh, would you come to me? Would you come to me? Would you come to me? Amen. Father, thank you that we can come to you. Jesus, thank you that you opened the way. We love you this morning and we praise your name. Lord, may our, our, our praises, may our words now as we sing to you before we dismiss. Lord, reflect a heart that's passionate for you. You long that we come to you, we, that we draw near to you. Lord, we love you this morning. I love you, Lord, and I praise your name. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and let's sing one more song, and let's sing passionately to him before we dismiss.
Yes. Yeah. Praise the Lord.